Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. The transition from where we were two decades ago in a world that was peak newspaper with a little bit of internet and a lot of cable news to where we are now, which is just like tweet after tweet coming at us. It's it's just like incredible how jarring it is if you're staring at Twitter all day. My, my tweet deck screen is completely unusable because the volume is so high. I've set up all sorts of weird tricks of putting notifications on certain Twitter accounts coming to my home screen to see that I can stay on top of things. But that becomes overwhelming where I'm in a half hour meeting and is totally overtaken by the minute developments and the amount of misinformation, the things that you just see that are just like, wait, did that really happen? And it turns out, no, it didn't happen. Just people who have either created misinformation or have allowed themselves to be deceived and we're all subject to it. Even the people like us who are trained for months, who have been trained to think about this and to stop and pause in every one of these moments, we're still dealing with that stuff. This is Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland. And even though Twitter can be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad place. Oh God, there have been so many memes. There have just been so many good moments. Some of the election memes are actually pretty good. There's a lot of this. Making you wait like that makes me feel nothing. This. Okay, one more and then we have to we have to get back to counting. Seriously, one more meme and then we're counting again, okay? And that. It ain't over till it's over. Okay, so after the uh, longest week in recent history at least, after some waiting and waiting and waiting. Joe Biden has won the presidency, and he's going to be inaugurated in January. I talked through the implications of what happened on Tuesday and has been continuing to happen all week with my boss, Sadiq Reddy, Thursday evening before the race was called, but when we knew it was trending in Biden's direction. I'm Sadiq Reddy, managing editor of Politico. All right, and Sadiq, you are here to talk about big story this week. You know, according to this forecasting website I found, SmokyMountains.com, the peak fall foliage in the Washington, D.C. area has passed. It's done for an entire year. Your thoughts? You know, this is really the important question on the minds of the American people right now is (laughs) when are the leaves going to turn? Certainly the ones in the mid-Atlantic region, yes. It is really important for us to focus on that at this very moment. Yeah. At least we don't have wildfires, right? Look on the bright side. You know, according to the map, actually, basically, we're talking about South Carolina, half of Georgia, and then, like, you know, a nice little sweep across the south (laughs) uh, has has the peak fall this week. Yes. uh, And next we'll we'll talk about the paint that's going to be drying since that's what (laughs) watching an election feels like. You know, if you had listened to anybody who follows elections, whether it's our own Zach Montalaro, uh, who has been writing this endlessly that it would take days or weeks, if you had listened to Scott Bland, uh, if you had listened to anybody, you would know that we were not likely to have a clear result on election night. There were some surprises in all of this. The fact that the polling suggested the gaps would be wider and they're, they're not as wide. That's, I think, an interesting outcome here. But we did know with certainty that it was going to take a long time to work through all these issues. You know, the thing I will say, though, is that even having having done all this, as it was happening in real time, it still felt a little shocking to the system. 
You know what I mean? It, it did because we we still feel like we learned something from the last election. We want to believe that we braced ourselves for the polling to not be as clear in advance, and then you see it coming in, and you just see mass confusion. People staring at needles on a website, wondering, looking back to twenty sixteen. It's just the the idea that you wonder whether we ever learn anything, yeah. and that's the case here. Uh, whether anything actually matters in these lessons. Well, Sudeep, you've been in the the media business for a long time. What what was your first reporting job? My first reporting job was at the Dallas Morning News starting in uh, 2001. I was covering energy and, and tech and a fair amount of what was coming out of the Bush administration. Have you, you know, thinking not just about election night and election week that we're experiencing right now, and have you ever kind of experienced anything like this and, and you know, what's going on right now? You know, I do remember those moments in 2000. I was still at a, at a college newspaper, but that moment when we were wondering about the 2000 election and how long it was going to take and the hanging chads and the uncertainty out of all of it seemed just really jarring where you wonder, is this what we've come down to where we look like a banana republic and you've got people protesting in the streets, the astroturfing going on and the real protesting. And I use that as my basis because those images are just so vivid. It was a month of that debacle. And we just kept talking about it this time. Are we going to end up with another Florida style debacle where the votes look questionable and where people are going to keep waiting and fighting over that where everything else hangs in the balance? It, it doesn't feel like a Florida style debacle. It actually feels far more orderly than any of us expected. All of the, the fears that I had about what could happen on election day with voter intimidation, with violence, with everything that we all had in the back of our minds but didn't really want to talk about too much, none of that really happened. It's all been fairly uh, minimal, minor stuff. And I think that's like a, that's a good thing that's come out of this uh, wretched year. Yeah. So, you know, as you prepared for the election, you were thinking through it, and now it's it happened, and we're still in the process of sorting it all out, but it, the election has happened. <laughs> uh, did you get to say, I told you so, uh, at any point in the last few days about you know something you, you've been banging the drum about? Uh, or d did anyone get to say that to you about something <laughs> that they'd been banging the drum about that uh, has kind of made an impression? You know, there were two things where I feel like I've been thinking about. One is where I've been vindicated. One is where I've been wrong. And I've been wrong like a lot of other people in thinking that the national polling all along, uh, we knew that national polling doesn't translate into state polling, but we all took signals from that in some way that this would be an election that is going to, to tilt up and down the ballot toward Democrats, just like looking at the fundamentals of an election with uh, the state of the economy, with disapproval ratings, all those things you look at and you think, well, there's something here. And to see the House go, uh, while still remaining in Democratic hands, to see uh, Democrats lose seats was just like really kind of stunning to me. I just did not expect that. I did not, I was not braced for that. All of the, the little pointless contests I filled out with friends and coworkers did not factor any of that into account. We knew the Senate would be close. The Senate is close. It's, it's very possible that it could come down to a Georgia special election in two months. So all of that was, was where I was just like, I feel like I, I missed it on the House side and a lot of people did. Um, on the other front, though, 
I've been saying all along, Donald Trump is a magician. So that's what he does. That is his secret power. He knows how to take a rotten situation, a terrible jam, his entire life, he's been extracting himself from these seemingly hopeless situations, uh, his businesses, his uh, first presidential race. A magician does things, and what he's trying to do is create this cloud around the election. He's like throwing up this like ball of smoke to make it look like there's more there than there really is. And he is, uh, I think, doing exactly what he said he would do. It was predicted. It was predictable. It was predicted by him. And it is happening basically in that way. And that's what we're going to be watching for, even if we get election results. What is his next play here? How does this actually play out for the, the final two and a half months of his term? I guess, starting with uh, what he's saying and doing right now about the election, tell us a little bit about what we should know about that. You know, he, he's calling for a disruption to the counting process post-election. He's by threatening legal action, recounts, all sorts of stuff. You know, what, what can and can't he do in this situation? How does this work? And, and is any of what he's saying going to work? So the, the trick of understanding Donald Trump, I spent much of the last uh, four years, an extreme amount of the last two years, just focused on Trump, watching every word, becoming a Trumpologist, trying to understand what his play is here. And when you look at the actions that have been coming out of his team in recent days, you can trace it back to creating a, a narrative that the institutions were wrong, that the media is wrong, that the polling is wrong, uh, that there's something broken in the system. It's just like his entire idea that there's rot in the system. That's what he's entirely focused on is to, to try to, to create that cloud of uncertainty, to create the questions around it all. And he's been building that up. He's been saying that basically if he loses the election, then it's a fraudulent election. If he wins, then it's totally clear. He was doing that before the 2016 election. He was doing that leading up to this. And the play here is a long game that he's got because like his, his entire being rests on the perception that people are out to get him, that the system is stacked against him. It's stacked against his supporters. And that's what he's, he's building toward. And that's what he's doing in the, the aftermath of the election, saying that this is all a fraud, that the ballots are, are being miscounted. The way he's kind of screwed it up, though, is by not actually working through a message that is coherent around it. He's got supporters in one state saying, stop the count, supporters in another saying, count the ballots. Uh, this is literally lifted directly out of a Veep episode. Then we've seen it, like we've watched the Veep episode and you think, oh, well, this is like an exaggeration of, of what could happen, kind of drawn from the 2000 Florida election and the recount. But it's happening in real life. It's just like these last few days are the encapsulation of a Veep episode we get to live through. And now he's sending out tweets that are being flagged by Twitter. His campaign is now sending out statements with all caps from the president so that reporters can then screenshot it and get around the, the Twitter filter. There's so many things that are happening that you can just see over and over. They're kind of playing it by ear. But the end result is to be able to say that this election was a fraud it was stolen from us. And perhaps uh, it will lead right up to Trump announcing very early that he's he's thinking about running in 2024. Wow. Um, people around him are already saying that quite vocally. And that just sets up his, his next argument, his next case, that this was close. This was stolen from us. We can win this. And to be clear, you know, his campaign is also sending lawyers into courts in various states to, to make that argument. They are not having any luck with, with that in, you know, 
well, I was going to say real life, but the <laughs> so far, but you know, in so certainly like in, in terms of the actual vote count right now, they're not finding any joy in w- with the actual legal cases they're bringing. Exactly, and they are in some ways operating a lot like we felt the Gore campaign was operating in two thousand. When you're at a deficit, you try everything. You try every legal strategy. You try all the arguments you can. You get people out there, but when you're at a deficit, and this is. These are larger deficits in these states than what Florida ended up being in the final count after the the election was decided effectively by the Supreme Court. The final count had Bush winning by 537 votes in Florida. Um, those margins aren't as tight, but they're still tight enough for him to to say that there was fraud and it was stolen. You know, the, what, what you've been saying about kind of Trump's plan here now after you laid out this kind of, you know, multi-year scenario of what Trump is doing right now as as kind of leading into a potentially a next campaign or any number of other things, I suppose. The 2020 campaign will last as long as a Trump family member remains in the public sphere in some way. So whether it's Donald Trump himself or Donald Trump Jr. or people who claim affiliation to Trump, they're all going to point to this. And there are enough arguments here for the Trump team to say this was a lot closer than the the corrupt media made it out to be. And if not for coronavirus, then we would have won. If not for this, if not for that, you can do a lot of if not for arguments here, though in some cases there's data showing that even in places hardest hit by coronavirus, there was a, a, a move toward Trump, uh, which tells us something about our, our assumptions on the politics here. Sadiq, a big question kind of flying around right now outside news organizations among news readers is about how we determine when a race or a state is called. And, uh, you know, either at Politico specifically or elsewhere, but like, why, why, for example, did we call Arizona when the New York Times has not, you know, what, what's that decision like? And what, what goes on behind the scenes to get there? Scott, as as you know, we've had two options all along. One is to decide that we want to call our own races with our own staff and build up a team of a couple dozen election analysts to sit on a desk or to do what the AP does and get a couple thousand journalists to go uh, around and, and track races and upload data into websites and then have a couple dozen people making the calls in the end. We rely on the Associated Press. It is a, a nonprofit. It is, it is a cooperative that we're all members of. And we've always been reliant on the AP and a lot of uh, most news organizations in the country use AP calls, including the New York Times and the Washington Post. What was surprising and, and, and our own calls within Politico rest on a preponderance of evidence, which is usually what the AP relies on, or a call by multiple net- networks, which are doing much of the same thing. What really was, I think, the biggest stunner of election night and could prove to be one of the, the marks in history is when Fox News came out and called Arizona uh, for the president. And it, it mattered not only for or the fact that uh, that there was a state that flipped, it mattered because when I looked up on the screen, I was just like stunned to see that the screen that the president of the United States was looking at, which he's watched like how many hours of Fox News does he watch each day? He was staring at that screen in his watch parties showing like he was down and he was down bad when you see that. And that is that really just completely cut him off at the knees in his argument to say that he was winning and that he was going to win the election. And that's like part of the narrative. Part of the the Trump magic 
is to be able to say that he's winning even when he's not. And in this case, it just completely blew him away because then he has to look at screens from from other cable shows showing that he was like they hadn't called Arizona. And that was that we now know it started all behind the scenes effort to get them to try to change their call. Fox News wouldn't do it. It was when the AP came around. So we were certainly not going to lean on a single network call. When the AP uh, made its call, we certainly were leaning into that. But Ultimately, that comes to an individual news organization's decision on whether you want to say that somebody has won or that that the evidence is shown in some other way that someone is on on a clear path to winning. And no one wants to call a presidential race wrongly. And so that's why after the Arizona call, there's a lot more caution from everyone else. But the AP has not retracted its call. Fox News has not retracted its call. Uh, it could turn out that other states actually make the difference first. Uh, in this, but it ju- it does show uh, the the perils of this exercise, particularly in a nutty election year when so many so many forces proved not to be true in terms of how people were voting and and where the votes were coming from. Yeah, I'm curious how you see a few things going forward from here. I think first, just the the kind of state of political journalism, what you think about how it performed in in 2020 and and where it goes from here. What do you think happens next? People who who know. Politico and know what we do of getting deeper in, into the story beyond the the superficial polling. Uh, understand that there were signs uh, all along that the polling wasn't going to turn out precisely uh, this way. We and we I can point to just about any narrative we've heard and uh, point back to stories we've done in the last few weeks, the last few months, and the last couple of years that suggest okay, well, like yeah, this was a known known factor. It's all just questions of degree for most of political journalism. We we can identify the trends, but we don't know how they're going to resonate with a wide swath of voters. What is just remarkable to me, uh, I'm sure everyone has seen these, these figures now that Joe Biden will have gotten more more votes uh, for president than anyone in history beating Barack Obama. Obviously, the population is rising, so that's, that's notable. Uh, but Donald Trump will have gotten more votes for losing the presidency than than anyone else, and so the the yeah. le, the levels of participation, the highest participation rate uh, in 120 years, is on its face like it's undeniably good that people are at least getting involved and pay, paying attention. I think that's that's like far better than the apathetic approach, but um, that has to translate next into actually like digging deeper into the causes and the reasons. What we've already been doing is is looking at like. Why do so many politicians, but also journalists, treat groups as monoliths? And they're not monoliths. And we're we're learning that over and over, particularly around demographic breakdowns on gender and race, that it's not as simple as it seems. And I think that creates an opening for more intelligent discourse in the long run, whether we're going to get that in the short run, I'm not so sure. I, I, I think I agree with you that the political media is, is like pretty good at identifying uh, kind of trends and important stories and that, and that the, the question is just like how best to calibrate what they mean and what, what big effect they have. Right. But the kind of the main thing we use for that is, is polling. And it just, it's, it, it feels unsettling, right? Doesn't it feel unsettling? Yeah, it feels unsettling. And and it, it's, I don't want to go full bore into like the polls were wrong. We can't, we don't have a good sense of like what the, the total error is and so on and so forth. But, but I'm just thinking about the way we calibrate them into our coverage, knowing that there can be errors. It feels like something is off there and we know that this is a potential problem and we don't know how to wrench ourselves out of this, this kind of rut through the middle of the road. 
it's like the the polls were perfectly right in 40 out of 50 states. And it's it's in other states where you see like big surprises. And that's what we're working through. I, I tend to think we shouldn't like lose faith in the directional value of polls and the trends that polls can tell us. There's a mix of polling and also just like obvious things we can see with our, our own eyes. I, I was just actually recounting uh, last night a conversation that I had with you. I was recounting somebody else, conversation I had with you uh, in the spring of 2019 about one of the, the primary candidates and uh, the crowds he was getting in New Hampshire and how there were so few black faces uh, in that crowd. That was the Pete Buttigieg campaign. It was one of those things that I, I just remember noticing early on. I was like, huh, like what's going on here to have like a sea of people coming out. And then you look at the other candidates and you see like where that's, where that's playing out. That is obviously like directionally something that mattered a lot in the campaign. Joe Biden being able to secure the black vote was like the, the final thing for the, for his primary win in South Carolina. It was the, the leading factor. And so directionally, all of that really matters. And we, we shouldn't like forget about that. But Donald Trump is going to get far more of the black vote than any of us imagined. Like the, all of the stories I've, I've uh, done and you've done in the last two years about, uh, about this issue, and especially over the last six months, when you think about uh, what's happened in the country, you think, wow, like, how did that happen? How did he pull off that share of the black vote? And it, it just, again, shows that we can't be treating groups like monoliths. And we have to look at like, how voters are, are swayed and and particularly as each of these groups diversifies over time, we have to be thinking about that. There'll be a transition, a presidential transition. What on earth is that going to be like? It is going to be the most bizarre transition uh, of our lives. There, there's this w- very weird uh, question hanging over all of us regarding the the transition um, that we could see. Is Donald Trump really going to accept the results of the election? Is he going to go through a traditional process where uh, two days after the victor is clear, uh, that person gets invited to the White House and they sit down in the Oval Office and they have a friendly chat? Joe Biden's seen the inside of the Oval Office. He doesn't need to to spend any more time doing that. But it just goes to like the, the more fundamental questions about what is this even going to look like? Like there are such like fundamental differences. And when you add the bitterness onto it, that is going to exist. A fair amount of the transition could involve uh, people who are in the Trump administration trying to just cement their legacy for areas that they had worked on, uh, trying to, to hope that something that they did last. They don't want to see it all uh, undone on day one. But a, a fair amount of it for the president himself is going to be planning his own his own future. Um, is he really going to focus on the need for an economic stimulus? Is he going to get up there and do more uh, press conferences about uh, and, and take questions about should people be wearing masks or not wearing masks? It's just I've difficulty seeing that. But he loves the spotlight too much as well. And so does he really want to just walk away from that and lose the opportunity to be like seen as the president? I imagine we're going to get some combination of of a lot of Trump airtime with a, a mix of saying that the, this election was stolen by coronavirus and setting the stage for whatever comes next for him. And that's like, that's true to Trump, what we would imagine from it. But the actual particulars of the transition, we can see how Joe Biden's team is uh, is doing it. They pulled a, a power move on uh, Wednesday night by releasing their, their transition website. It directly echoed what the, the Bush team was doing in 2000 to make it look like they were the winners of that election, even as the vote counting continued. And so things are proceeding in that direction, but I fully expect to have two and a half months of interesting times. 
And it looks like we're going to have a couple runoffs in Georgia in January, which could potentially decide control of the Senate. <laughs> so, so absolutely nothing about any of this is final yet. But that throws a pretty big curveball into things. I think it's been 32 years since the last president was inaugurated without control of Congress. So it could be different. Yeah, it, it will be. Yeah. It in some ways feels like this is going to be at least two years of just lowering the temperature. That is what Biden's entire pitch has been. But he, he's going to be really pushed in another direction like that. That is, I, I do think, what his actual goal is. But as soon as Democrats take control of federal agencies, they're going to be trying to operate in a way that that really tries to move in the direction of what a lot of Democrats were discussing during the primary. And that's just going to be the push and pull of all of this. How do you deal with climate without legislation? How do you deal with uh, economic issues and financial issues without legislation? On all of these fronts, it's still going to to require that push. And we will be in the perpetual campaign leading into the, the 22, <laughs> 22 Senate races, where a lot more Republican seats are vulnerable than Democratic seats. And, and then like, it will tee up that conversation. But it, I mean, it seems like Biden's trapped in a paradox in that situation because not having control of Congress makes uh, executive action that much more important and what the people in charge of the various cabinet agencies are going to be able to do. But Senate Republicans have a veto over who gets to sit in those jobs. We know from the early Obama years that Mitch McConnell's goal was to make Obama, a one-term president. Uh, he certainly helped stymie his second term in the end in all sorts of ways, Supreme Court, economic front. I remember sitting through uh, endless White House briefings of, we can't wait, we've got to do things through federal agency action. So they have a playbook for for this of how to deal with it. It's really a question of how they they play the politics of it. Joe Biden has worked with Mitch McConnell for a long time. McConnell has turned to Joe Biden for cutting deals. I remember back when we were uh, talking in a different era about the fiscal cliff and uh, we're wondering whether- It was like 145 years ago, right? (laughs) It feels like it. It feels like it. But all within the last decade, it was Mitch McConnell who was was out there in public saying, can anyone do a deal uh, in the the White House? Anyone know how to do that? And Biden was one of the players who came forward to, to cut that deal- and figure out a way forward. And so they've they've done it and and Biden uh, would certainly love to present himself as a bipartisan player who can work across party lines and he uh, certainly has the institutional uh, ability to do that. But do Republicans really want to get anything done? But on top of that, when they they done, did really really well at the state level across the country and won house seats are they really going to be looking for like bipartisan deal making in that case when they feel mm. like they've got a movement? And uh, I know there are obviously a lot of Republicans who have an eye on 2024 who are just like imagining uh, like a nightmare if Trump tries to run again. But they are also recognizing that they can't they can't go too far to the center for a party that Trump is pulling further and further to the right. Well, that that kind of brings me to my last question. We've gone over a lot of them, so just a little one to end on here. Uh, how do you think this election has changed our democracy? Oh, that is a good question. Uh, <laughs> just a little one, lightning round. You just, know. Just, just a little not, a yeah. lightning round, a yes or no. The voter turnout issue is probably the, the biggest positive I would take from it, that people actually showed up. That's probably one of the things that I've I've been most depressed about for many years is like how few people show up. Uh, in our country versus others. And I I think that's a a positive trending sign. The negative is I just think we're going to be crazier and crazier 
I feel like the the polarization will only widen and the madness will continue in a new way uh, into the the 2020s. And that is, uh, I don't think we're really fully prepared for how nutty things are going to get going forward. The Tea Party will will seem like a like a dream perhaps a, a better version of what we have coming forward. A different kind of roaring 20s, maybe. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps, yeah. It's a joke for all you, you history nuts out there. All right, well, Sudeep, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott. All right, that's our show. Our producers are Annie Reese and Adrian Hurst. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. Subscribe to Nerdcast wherever you're listening. And if you like what you hear, check out some of our other podcasts, Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy, and Pulse Check, just to name a few. And we have a brand new podcast series from Politico, Global Translations. We'll talk to you again next week.